Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Amulia Malati about a death in Denmark. Amulia is the best-selling author of eight novels, including The Copenhagen Affair, A House for Happy Mothers, and The Mango Season. Her books have been translated into several languages, and she won a screenwriting award for her work on Island, a Danish series that aired on Amazon Prime Global and Studio Canal Plus. Currently living in California, she is a Danish citizen who was born and raised in India. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water, once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. And now for my read-alike request segment. While every book is unique and stands alone, certain elements of books we love really stick with us. While lots of websites use algorithms to try and recommend similar books, I rarely find that these recommendations make sense because they do not focus on what it is I liked about a particular book. That is what I want to tap into, the aspects of the book that appealed to the requester, and to focus on finding those elements in other books. Today's request is from Erica, 
and she selected The Cartographers by Pung Shepherd, a book I adored as well. The Cartographers was one of my very first early reads through my Patreon program and was a huge hit with the group. When Nell Young's estranged father, a renowned cartographer, is found dead in the New York Public Library where he works, she discovers that he was clutching the same gas station map that caused their falling out years before. Curious about the importance of the map and its potential link to her father's death, Nell conducts research and discovers that the map is exceedingly rare, and in fact it is the only one left of its kind. Baffled by this bizarre discovery, Nell sets out to uncover the secrets behind the map. Erica enjoyed the book because she loves a book with maps, libraries, and books at the center. She says, I also love mysteries, and I thought this was a fun one. I have been looking for a book like it for quite a while. I have to say, I found it a little tricky to find read-alikes for the cartographers. It is so unique and clever. But I eventually settled on several recommendations. The first book I am recommending as a read-alike to the cartographers is The Bookman's Tale by Charlie Lovett. Erica is looking for mystery books, centered around books, and The Bookman's Tale is such a story. Peter Byerly isn't sure what drew him into the particular bookshop. Nine months earlier, the death of his beloved wife Amanda had left him shattered. The young antiquarian bookseller relocated from North Carolina to the English countryside, hoping to rediscover the joy he once took in collecting and restoring rare books. But upon opening an 18th century study of Shakespeare forgeries, Peter is shocked when a portrait of Amanda tumbles out of its pages. Of course, it isn't really her. The watercolor is clearly Victorian. Yet the resemblance is uncanny, and Peter becomes obsessed with learning the picture's origins. This was a five-star read for me, and I think it is a good read-alike for the cartographers. My next recommendation is Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore by Robin Sloan. Clay Jannon tells how serendipity, sheer curiosity, and the ability to climb a ladder like a monkey has sent him from web drone to night shift at Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. After just a few days on the job, Clay realizes just how curious this store is. A few customers come in repeatedly without buying anything. Instead, they check out obscure volumes from strange corners of the store. All runs according to some elaborate, long-standing arrangement with Mr. Penumbra. The store must be a front for something larger, Clay concludes. He embarks on a complex analysis of the customer's behavior and ropes in friends to help. Once they bring their findings to Mr. Penumbra, it turns out the secrets extend far outside the walls of the bookstore. A quest to New York City dips in a world conspiracy for eternal life. I think this one is a compelling read-alike for the cartographers because of the mystical elements in the story and the focus on books. The third books that I am going to recommend are a bit outside the box. Robert Poby writes a fabulous mystery series starring astrophysicist Lucas Page. They are not set around libraries or books, but they are very clever and unique, much like the cartographers. In the first book, City of Windows, and there are a total of three so far. An FBI agent in a moving SUV in New York City is killed by a nearly impossible sniper shot during the worst blizzard in memory. Unable to pinpoint where the shot came from, as the storm rapidly wipes out evidence, the agent in charge, Brett Kehoe, turns to the one man who might be able to help them, former FBI agent Lucas Page. Page is a Columbia University professor and best-selling author who left the FBI years ago after a tragic accident. But he has an amazing ability to read a crime scene, figure out angles and trajectories in his head, 
and he might be the only one to be able to find the sniper's nest. This is one of the best mystery series out there and has the same smartness to the books that I found in the cartographers. While Erica mentioned also loving stories about maps, I did a little research and found that Linwood Barkley has a thriller about maps called Trust Your Eyes. I haven't read it yet, but I loved Barkley's book last year, Take Your Breath Away, which was also a Patreon early read that was very popular with the group. So I'm eager to read Trust Your Eyes now. The reviews are quite good. Thanks, Erica, for submitting a read-alike request, and I hope you enjoy these recommendations. And now, onto my conversation with Amulia Malati. Welcome, Amulia. How are you today? Very well, thank you. And very excited to be on your podcast. I'm so excited that you're here because I saw your book a while ago, A Death in Denmark, and I love anything set in Copenhagen. I've only visited once, but I loved it, and I'm dying to go back. And so I knew I had to read it, and it was just so wonderful. And what I liked so much about it was it was very, very atmospheric. I felt like I learned a lot about Copenhagen. It's my favorite city in the world. So when you're going, let me know. I'll make you a, a list of all the places that you should go see in addition to all the places you know, you're going to walk into anyway. It is one of my favorite cities in the world. And, you know, I think everybody should go visit Denmark, hopefully in the summer. That's when I went in the summer. And it was just beautiful. And my daughter was just studying in France last fall. And she visited on a weekend, I think in October, and she fell in love with the city too. So I know we need to plan a trip there at some point. And I will definitely ask you for tips. I'm all in. So before we get started with my questions, why don't you give me a quick synopsis of A Death in Denmark for those that won't have read it yet? So the, A Death in Denmark is about, well, A Death in Denmark. And the story is about uh, a private investigator, Gabriel Prast. I think his name sometimes will be said as priest, but it is Prast. And Gabriel is an ex-cop and his ex-girlfriend, um, the one who got away and he never got over, asks him to help. Um, so five years ago, a politician, a right-wing politician was murdered by a refugee. And she comes and tells him, I don't think he did it. And this is one of those cases that is closed. I mean, it's finished. And he would never have taken a case such as this. But he says, okay, I'll do it, you know, because she's the one who got away. And then he starts to investigate. And as he starts to investigate, you know, his face uh, meets with the fists of a few uh, bad guys. And he starts to wonder what was going on. And, uh, this leads him into not just where Denmark and Europe is today with the, you know, Middle East refugee crisis or, you know, with, with brown refugees, let me be more specific, but also going back to World War II when, you know, there was a wave of anti-Semitism across Europe as well. And as he starts to connect the dots, um, there are some very important and powerful people in Denmark who actually don't want these secrets to be revealed. And so he gets beat up some more. Um, that was one of the things that I you know, later looked back and said, he got beat up a lot. <laughs> he did. M maybe I should go easy on the poor guy next time. But, you know, in the end, what he really wants to do is he wants to clear the name of this refugee, uh, this immigrant who actually did not commit the murder and was framed. And uh, so the story is about how he goes about achieving that. And, you know, there's a huge cast of characters around him, his friends. Uh, he's a single father. He has a 20-year-old daughter uh, who lives with her mother. 
and her bonus father. You know, what I love in Denmark is they don't call them step parents. They call them bonus parents. And, you know, he has friends from different places. And what I love about Gabriel is that he's very versatile. He knows how to connect with people in a, in, in a fun way. And then there is the city, a character of its own as he explores it. Uh, he bicycles everywhere, just like a good, you know, citizen of Copenhagen would do. And, you know, as, as the story unravels, it was important for me as well to kind of see and learn about the history of Denmark, of, of the time during the occupation of Denmark, because Nazis were there from uh, 41 to 45. I think I'm getting that correctly. And it was history that I didn't know. And my husband's Danish. And we both didn't know this history. So it, w it became an interesting journey for us. So that's what the story is about. And it's a lot of fun because, you know, you get to go to Copenhagen without ever, you know, getting on a plane. That is one of my favorite things about a book is when it is so atmospheric and truly drops you into the place that you're reading about. And I felt your book definitely did that. I got to travel to Copenhagen without getting on a plane. And I love bonus parent, by the way. What a friendlier term than step parent. So you say Copenhagen is your favorite city, but how did you decide to set this story there? Well, it was COVID and I was missing travel. I was missing Copenhagen. Copenhagen, you know, I lived in Denmark for 14 years and about 11 of that was in and around Copenhagen. And I love the city. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want to live in Denmark because the weather. <laughs> but I love the city of Copenhagen. It is accessible, great restaurants, just beautiful museums within the city. You can, you can spend a whole day there. So I was missing Copenhagen. I had just traveled like, you know, here was COVID. I desperately wanted to go to Copenhagen. I wanted to visit. And, you know, what, what better way of doing it but by writing about a city. But there were several things happening at that point. Uh, this had just started. COVID had just, you know, just a month before, I think two weeks before I was in Amsterdam and I had been to the Hikes Museum, Van Gogh Museum, you know, eaten at some nice restaurants. And I knew I was going to travel to Copenhagen, I think in March or April. So I was looking forward to it. And then suddenly everything stopped. So this book that I was thinking of writing for many, 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 many years, I thought maybe it was time to do that. A big part of it was the missing of Copenhagen, but the other was having this time. Um, you know, I work full time. I'm a marketing executive for uh, a biotechnology company, but I had all this time, right? We were working from home. So I had this uninterrupted thinking time, which allowed me to kind of write the book because I have tried to write this book. You know, between every book, I'll probably hit in 50 pages or 100 pages and then delete it. So this time I was like, okay, I think I'm going to get it right. I am going to get it right. Um, but I wasn't so sure. But then suddenly, I don't know, it just flew. He was playing music and this woman walked in to Mojo, which is one of my husband and my favorite blues bar in Copenhagen. And the story came to be. And then he went to all the places I love going to in Copenhagen, obviously drinking some of the good wine, eating all that good food, which I couldn't do. But then there was all the research that went into that book. So in a way, it was kind of a fun thing to do during COVID because I would talk about the book. My kids were home. Uh, my son, who was in university, came back. And we would 
spent like two, three hours at dinner every day. That was kind of the time where we connected. And I talk about the book. I'm like, okay, and then this happened. And oh my God, we found out this new thing about, you know, World War II history in Denmark. Did you know? It was almost collaborative. So it took us all back, all four of us back to Denmark and Copenhagen during COVID. So that's why it was set in Copenhagen, because it was the city that I missed so much. Well, it definitely reads like a love letter to the city. And I I love that because you just bring it all to life. As you mentioned, the places you like, and just for the reader to feel like they literally had visited the city. And that's that's hard to do sometimes, I think. I think sometimes, especially if you know a city very well, uh, you kind of gloss over it. Because I, I have that happen too, when you know, suddenly I go back and say, I need to describe that street a little better. Of course, I know what Yes Boget looks like, but nobody else does. So I think there is an aspect of that there where... Uh, we as writers, you know, get comfortable with a place or a situation. And then we have to kind of re-explain what things look like. You know, this is a series. So I've been, I'm working on the next book. And I find that I have to describe things over and over again, because I was like, okay, how did I describe this in the previous book? I have to go check it out because my first instinct is, yeah, well, you know, it's a room, is a room, is a room. They know what that looks like. So I think there is this aspect of knowing something so well, but then kind of forgetting that others can't see what you know. You're envisioning it in your mind. And so you know exactly what it looks like and you have to make sure that gets translated to the page. Exactly. Well, this may be ignorance on my part, but the only familiarity I had with Denmark during World War II was Lois Lowry's book, Number the Stars, where it talks about the Danes and saving a lot of the Jewish children. So I didn't realize there had been so much collaboration also. And that was so disheartening. You know, I think we have to look at the time then. The Germans were, were going to come in no matter what, right? I think the, the battle, I won't call it a war, at the, at the border lasted eight hours. They were not, I mean, they, it was a skirmish. Denmark did not have a big army. And one of the things that the Danish government and the king decided was that, you know, this is happening. The best way to avoid pain and suffering for our people will be to kind of work together with the Germans. And, and you know, there was a feeling at that point that, oh, you know, we're going to become just like another German state, like Bavaria, it's, you know, it's going to be Denmark. There was a feeling of that. And you have to understand the border has been shifting a lot between Denmark and Germany. So like Southern Denmark, they speak German. And, and you know, because of that. So I think we have to look at it from that perspective. So the part that was disappointing for me was to find out how these very large organizations and powerful people collaborated with the Germans and continued to collaborate with the Germans and made a lot of money out of it. And these companies still exist today, uh, thriving companies. I mean, and you can turn around and say, well, Porsche, Dior, and all these companies supported the Germans and they're still around. But these companies never kind of paid a price for that. But after the Germans left, it was the little people, you know, the, the poor woman who slept with a German soldier or fell in love with a German soldier. She got beat up. And, you know, somebody who did laundry for them got, you know, went to jail. But these large companies got away with it. And the politicians, you know, they were all in. And it was the Communist Party in Denmark that sort of was the resistant party and kind of helped the resistance grow against Germany. But after the Germans left, 
the Danes voted back the politicians who collaborated, not the communists. So there is a kind of history here that is painful. But I think what's even more painful is the Danes refused to talk about it for the longest time. Even now, you will see that it is not popular. I mean, a lot of things when, you know, my husband was looking at it, I said, did you know about this? And he goes, no. And he was born and raised in Denmark. So he would be surprised when he found out something. Uh, One of the things that I found was that a a lot of, you know, Danish Jews were saved uh, and and were rescued by boat. Fishermen took them across uh, from Denmark to Sweden. And they had to pay for that travel. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either, because again, you know, Number of the Stars, that's what it's about, the, the people leaving via boat. But nobody had ever mentioned they had to pay. Yeah, it, there was a cost attached to it, which was kind of, I mean, makes sense, doesn't make sense, but it, it, it was disappointing. Uh, my husband said, yeah, we kind of had an idea of that, but you know, that wasn't important. I think what was also kind of disheartening for me, finding out and I actually found this out because uh, the Prime Minister of Denmark, Anas Pohasmussen, I don't remember the year, I'll have to look it back up, he apologized for uh, you know, how Danes collaborated with, uh, with the Germans and also apologized for sending back non-Danish Jews. And the reason for that was Danish Jews were Danes first, but when they were not Danish, then they were Jewish first. So there's a lot of sadness in that, that that these people would come for safety to Denmark and then they would just send them back into Germany where they were killed in brutal ways. So I did a lot of that research, read a lot of reports and kind of felt a little crushed. I did a lot of papers that were written about that time, research papers. Another thing that kind of was surprising both to my husband and me was that even though there was a war going on, Denmark thrived. You know, when you look at the data, um, you see how well small companies, you know, grew. So Denmark was making good money. People weren't suffering. That is kind of how Denmark wants to remember its history in some ways. But there are some very progressive historians who are like, hey, we need to kind of accept the truth. We did a lot of good too, because you can't take away the good, right? You can't take away the fact that you know, October 1st, 1943, when they wanted to round up the Jews in Copenhagen, the Danish police said, no, we won't help you. And they were all fired. They were all fired that day. And they're like, well, you're on your own. We are not going to help you. So there was a lot of good that happened as well. But, you know, history is written by its victors, as they say. So there's parts of Danish history that they have glossed over. So this was kind of a journey for me to find that out. But, you know, as you look at history around Europe, you will find stories like this elsewhere. Um, When you go to Germany, it wasn't like the war ended, then everybody was like, oh, yeah, (laughs) the Nazis were bad. Right. It took years before it became part of mainstream thinking. Well, and the Nazi party didn't go away for a while. I mean, they were planning to try to come back again. So, yes, it definitely took a while. I guess I should have clarified a little bit. The basic collaborating, I understand. You operate a a deli and people come in and buy food, things like that. I get that. It's the turning in of the Jews that I don't understand. You know, that other people were saying this isn't right. The police officers are quitting, but there are still some people out there narking on their neighbors. Yeah. 
And you just have to know that's not the right thing to do. You know what I mean? Like whether it's the whatever time period is, it just it's so disheartening that there are people like that and continue to be. But I just thought, ugh, because you do have this idea of Denmark as the king saying, okay, you know, we're not going to argue with them. We're not going to fight because it's not going to get us anywhere. It saved a lot of the city, all of that. It's just that you think, couldn't people have just said, great, we will serve you, we'll clean your clothes, we'll do whatever, but we will also protect our citizens or other citizens, regardless of whether they're Danish or not. You have to understand there were a lot of Danes who thought this was a good thing for Denmark. Yeah, I know. And it's just hard to understand that. But you're right. It is one of those things that's much more complicated than it seems. Just like everything else. Exactly. Well, another thing that this brings up is you talk a little bit about the idea of who pays for the sins of the father and the grandfather. That's a really tough topic. And for how long? Yeah. So in the book, without going into spoilers, so to speak, and not that it's that kind of a book, but you know, there is a powerful Dane whose grandfather was a collaborator and was the cause of Danish citizens being killed. And he wants to hide that. And he's also kind of like, why should I pay for my grandfather's sins? And I, I, I think there's a scene there where Gabriel says, I don't care about your grandfather's sins. I care about your sins. You did something bad today. What do I care what happened then? So there is that, right? How long do you pay for your sins? Living in Denmark, living in Europe taught me something very interesting because, you know, World War II was just a few pages in my history book when I grew up in India. And a close friend of mine was from Eastern Germany, and she and I worked together in Copenhagen. And I remember this was World Cup that was taking place in Germany that year. And there were parties everywhere and national anthems and songs. And she told me, she said, for the first time, Amulia, I think we felt proud again of being German. It has taken that long. And I was thinking, well, it wasn't her fault. She didn't do anything. And yet she carried that with her. It really made me think when you were talking about that at the end, and again, I agree with you, no spoilers, because I don't want to ruin anything for anyone, but it is so thought-provoking. And I mentioned that my daughter had been in France in the fall, and we went at the end of her time over the, the winter holidays, and we went to Normandy. My husband had always wanted to go there. And I felt like we had stepped back in time because that whole area is so focused on World War II and what happened there, and they get so many tourists coming to visit or family members or whatever it is. But clearly, they haven't really moved on from World War II. And I felt it was just a fascinating glimpse at that and ties in with what your friend said. I think because so much of that happened, those places, they have a much longer memory. Yeah. And just like, you know, she still has this borrowed memory from her grandmother who was in Dresden of the bombs falling on Dresden and destroying the city. She understands the war, but a part of her feels like the Americans destroyed my grandmother's city. You know, it has nothing to do with her, but she still feels it. I think we have to learn from history. That is what history is there for in many ways, for us to learn from it and say, oh, you know, we're never going to do that again. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that because we seem to make the same mistakes as a world society again and again. But when you look back, you can see things are better. They're not perfect, but they are better. We did learn something uh, from a time where anti-Semitism was just okay to a time where even though it exists, it's not okay. We have a conversation around it. And different societies are at different places in that journey. 
of kind of looking at history and saying, these are the things that we did wrong and we want to do them right. The one thing my husband and I love about living in the United States is this is the one country and, you know, I've lived in a few countries and so is my husband where people actually say, I think we can do better. You know, we can have a conversation around this. It may not be perfect, but we'll talk about it. So there's a journey that that is taking place, I think, around the world where we are trying to do a better job of learning from history. I don't think we're there yet. But I agree with you. I think people are trying to look back, even like you talked about in Denmark, where people are saying, we need to address all sides of this. We need to realize it all happened, not just the positive, not just the negative, but a comprehensive look at what happened. And I do think with the anti-Semitism, people are now pushing back and saying, it's not okay to say these things. It's not okay to do these things. So you're right. At least it is more open now and people do push back. Yeah. I have this joke that I like to tell. It's not funny, but it's still kind of funny. My husband, who's Danish, and our friends, she's American and he's Italian. We, you know, I joke, you know, Dane and Italian and a, an American went to a bar and, you know, Son was saying, my husband was saying how in Denmark, you know, they just pretend racism doesn't exist. Like people would tell me there's no racism. I'm like, well, yeah, you can't see it, but you know, you're not brown. I'm brown. I can see it. And um, my friend Lisa, who's American, she says, yeah, in the US, you know, we know there's racism. We talk a lot about it. And then Stefano, who's Italian, goes, we know there's racism. We are okay with it. And I was like, okay, countries in different places of this journey. Yes. No, you're right. It, it's just hard sometimes to grasp all of it, get your mind around it. Well, as you were writing the series, because you know you're writing this first book, but you know it's going to be a series. Did that inform your writing at all? Did you have to make different choices? Did you have to think about things you were including because you knew they were going to be future books? Oh, God, no. I didn't even think that. <laughs> I could barely write this book. Uh, I am not a mystery writer. You know, my, my books have been more mainstream, women's fiction. I have never written a mystery, partly because I'm not very good at plotting. I usually want to know what happens in the end. That's the curiosity that gets me to finish a book. And you can't really write a mystery or a thriller without knowing at least at, on a high level what's going to happen. And I didn't. So I painted myself into a lot of corners. So there was a lot of pages that needed to get deleted. And, you know, a lot of situations that I'm like, okay, now I don't know where to go from here. Uh, I got to backtrack two chapters to figure it out. So that's my journey of writing a mystery. So none of the decisions I made were based on, oh my God, yeah, there'll be another Gabriel Prost book. It was more like, if I can get through this. So it was, it was kind of a fun journey for me because, like I said, never written a mystery, love mysteries. Big Philip Marlowe, Spencer. I mean, I, I, I am a big private investigator fan. I love those books. And so, you know, I really wanted to write that, uh, but never thought, oh, it'll be a series. Uh, but then, you know, I hope the universe is smiling at me and it will be one of those long series. As you're writing the second book, do you look back and think, I wish I hadn't done this in the first book? Or are you able to just go with the flow and keep looking forward? I can keep looking forward, but, you know, I go back a lot to say, what color were his eyes again? What did his house look like? Where does this person live? Um, but no regrets. Well, that's perfect. That works well. What about writing a mystery compared to contemporary fiction? Did you find it a lot different? Yeah. I mean, I just couldn't wing it. You know, there's this freedom in contemporary fiction where it'll end where it'll end. Uh, but I think in a mystery, there has to be a resolution. 
And even for me as a writer, I want a resolution. Like I want to know who did it. Did the butler do it? I mean, whoever it may be. So it was different. It was, it was hard for me to kind of, I can't plot the whole book still, but I plot like four or five chapters just to know, okay, then this will happen. And then, then this will happen instead of, well, I'm going to write this and then we'll see where these characters go. Maybe they'll go for a walk around the lake. Who knows what they'll do, uh, which is a different kind of, I think, writing, which I'm more comfortable with. Well, and the other thing with the mystery, not only do you need a resolution, but you need to point the reader in the right direction. And there's kind of a fine line to do that. You don't want to give them so much information that six chapters in, they're like, well, I know who did it. Now I just have to read to the end just to know who already did it. But you don't want it to get to the end and be like, who's this person? And how are they the person that committed the crime? So you have to kind of guide the reader on this road that is kind of narrow at times. Yeah. You know, so I decided that the reader would find out as much as Gabriel would. Gabriel is not smarter than the reader. Let me put it that way. And Gabriel is fumbling just as much as the reader was, or maybe the author was. (laughs) So I think that... I like that way of writing because, you know, I, don't get me wrong. I love Agatha Christie. I love Hercule Poirot. Uh, but he would know things. He would see things and he would like mention it in the end, you know. And I was like, well, you know, I can't relate to that. I'll never be able to see those things. So in a way, I wanted to write about Gabriel as being a little more human and that he finds out things, you know, by bungling into them. He gets lucky. He gets unlucky. Um, and then finds his way. So I, I thought that would make sure that uh, we wouldn't come to the end and people would be like, and how is this person the bad guy? Or who is this person? Every once in a while, it's like some random person that's just brought in at the end and you're like, I don't even understand this story now. So yes, no, I think that's a good way to do it and just make him an everyday person that we can all relate to. Yeah, I mean, that was my goal. Is he inspired by anyone? You know, I did think about that my husband would say it's him. <laughs> it's not. You know, he's kind of a cocktail of people. So my issue with a lot of Nordic noir, if you've read a lot in, if you've read noir um, or watched the TV shows, you know, like Harry Hola of the Yonesbo series, he's an alcoholic and, you know, they all have problems. Somebody got raped in their childhood and it's all very dark and dreary. I was watching The Chestnut Man. I had read it. And that was like, oh, my God, so scary and sad. And I always thought, as much as they are fun books, don't get me wrong, Copenhagen is nothing like that. Copenhagen is a fun place. People dress very well. You know, they take care of themselves. They look good. It's a good-looking city. And, you know, you go out, you enjoy the restaurants. It's a vibrant city. So I wanted to write a character who fit with the city. I mean, I didn't, you know, he may have his issues, you know, he'll keep renovating that house till kingdom come uh, and maybe never commit to a woman, but who knows? He, he doesn't have any, you know, deep wounds that I wanted to kind of, kind of go through. He's a normal person. He's, you know, just like everybody else, we have issues, we don't have issues, but there's no like deep seated trauma that prevents him from, you know, knowing the difference between, a good blazer and a bad blazer. That was really important for me too, that he knew his clothes well, uh, because, you know, you've been to, to, to Copenhagen, people dress well, I mean, really well. I have always enjoyed that about, about Europe and how well people dress and they take care of themselves. 
So that was why I wanted to have a character who was more Copenhagen, you know, he wears a suit and gets on a bicycle. I can't tell you how Copenhagen that is, or, you know, also Holland, I guess, where people just kind of take it in stride. Uh, So that's how Gabriel turned into uh, my Gabriel. And I just felt like when I was there that everybody was happy and content and it's just a vibrant place. And so I think he does fit in there well. I have to tell you, I'm a huge wimp. So I don't read most of that Nordic noir because it is way too dark for me, way too scary. I don't need to see everybody getting cut up and all that stuff. So I really don't read a lot of that. I like just standard mysteries better, you know, people that are kind of going to be more your run of the mill regular people, which is why I think I liked your book so much. Thank you. Yeah, that was the goal. Well, he's cool. He's cooler than regular people. Yeah, he's way cooler than I am. But at least I could identify with him versus some of the other people you're talking about that have had such trauma that they just can't ever recover from it, understandably. But it just sometimes makes it so dark. Yeah. Well, what about the highlight of writing the book? Oh, I had so much fun. I have had such an amazing time writing this book. I have kind of, you know, um, I have this uh, ritual, a process. It's not a ritual, it's a process. Whenever I write something, you know how it is, you get caught up in the writing. I have no clue what I'm writing after a while. Um, So I read it out to my husband right after I write, you know, so that I can feel like, okay, that didn't go well or, okay, it's it's still him. You know, he didn't turn into some other person. And we had such a good time, my husband and I, because it was fun. It was a joyride. Even the hard stuff was a joyride. For me, the highlight was being able to finally write a mystery and not falling flat on my face and, and not like having to bring some stranger out in the end, as you said, to be, he did it, he's the butler. It was a great relief. But just the joy of, of writing something like this, I mean, you know, for me, who's never written a mystery, this was, this was amazing. Uh, and he could do the things that I couldn't imagine any of my characters ever doing who are rooted in so much reality. I think that comes through in this interview so much, just listening to you talking about it all. There's so much joy in your voice and just everything you're saying. And I just love that. I have a theory. If a writer doesn't have fun writing, the reader won't have fun reading. It's the same thing when we cook. You know, when I'm in a bad mood and I cook, the food doesn't turn out right. But, you know, when you put love into the food and you're having a good time cooking and I've opened a bottle of wine, it usually tastes pretty good. I don't know. I'm a terrible cook, so I'm not really sure (laughs) the mood I'm in has anything to do with what I cook, but I believe you on your end. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, it's been... uh, you know, like you said, there's some great books that came out. Uh, I'm behind on a few, but my top favorite book right now is The Age of Weiss by Deepti Kapoor. It's a fabulous book. I absolutely loved it. It's set in India. It's a mystery, um, kind of. And the story is about three people. Ajay, who's the bodyguard and servant, and he's a bodyguard to the morally corrupt Sunny Vadia, who's like, you know, a spoiled rich brat. And then there is the journalist Nada who's trapped between doing the right thing and wanting the wrong thing. And it is just, I mean, it is so much fun to read. When when we talk about the different times in Hinduism, right now, you know, India is in the time of what they say, Kal Yug. Kal means vice, Yug means time. So the age of vice, you know, comes from there. So I I highly recommend that book uh, to everybody. 
you know, also warm my heart because it hit the New York Times bestseller list. Always fun when uh, an Indian does that. Um, the other book, and, and I'm a big Brené Brown fan, is I finally started um, listening to, I've had it for a while, Atlas of the Heart. And I think everybody should listen to this book. It is such a great book. I always learn so much from her. I always get you know, so much clarity when I read her work. Um, this book is about how to live our best lives without losing ourselves and how to be brave and vulnerable and how to understand how we feel. You know, the basic things. She talks about resentment and jealousy and envy and, you know, being more mindful about why we feel what we feel is a way to kind of conquer the feelings that we don't want to feel. And then I'm a little late on Will Trent, but I watched him on TV and fell in love. So I just started reading Karen Slaughter's triptych. I'm halfway through. I know it's an oldie, but definitely a goodie. Well, Brene Brown's here in Houston, so I have seen her speak a number of times, and I do love her books. Oh, you're lucky. She lives not very far from me, but I don't know her at all. But I have heard her speak a number of times at different book events or schools or things like that. She's delightful. Yeah. Uh, joy. I agree. Well, Amulia, thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I loved A Death in Denmark, and I can't wait for others to read it. Thank you so much, Cindy. I'm so grateful to be here, and I love your podcast. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. My name's Adam Sokol and I'm the host of the Passions and Prologues podcast. Every week, best-selling authors like Jenny Jackson, Rebecca Mackay, Lisa Scottolini or Brad Meltzer come on to my show to talk about, yes, their new books, but more importantly, the things that they're crazy passionate about. We've talked about the Muppets, powerlifting, traveling, gardening, home improvement, and so much more. We dig into why these things are their passions, how they inspire their writing, and where they came to fall in love with these random assorted things. Be sure to subscribe to the Passions and Prologues podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And check out evergreenpodcast.com to learn more.